James chapter 2. We have a lot to cover. James chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 14 down to verse verses, uh, verse 14 ver to verse 26. I'm sorry. And today's title is How to Handle Faith Claims. How to Handle Faith Claims. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Is that one there? Good. I am the greatest basketball player since Michael Jordan. Okay. <laughs> Let that sink in for, for a moment. I am the greatest basketball player since Michael Jordan. How many of you all believe that statement? <laughs> all right. Some people going by faith. <laughs> no matter how often I repeat that claim, right, it does not make the claim true. Bless you. If I keep repeating the claim, eventually people in this room are going to start asking one another, who has actually seen Pastor play basketball? Okay. And uh, no one in the room will be able to answer that question in the affirmative. Okay. You may find some family members or some friends that went to high school with me and, and ask them, have they seen uh, me play basketball? And their response will go something like, yeah, he's terrible. I mean, really, really bad, you know, you know, really bad. <laughs> okay. And eventually, right, when confronted with the facts that you can't shoot free throws, you know, you don't even hit the backboard half the time, you know, confronted with that evidence, I can keep making the claim that I am the best basketball player since Michael Jordan. But eventually, people are going to want me to put up or shut up. Eventually, people are going to want me to put up or shut up. In another, put another way, they will want me to justify myself by my works. My claim is not enough. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I have no basketball skills whatsoever, okay? When, when, when God was giving people basketball skills, you know, he just put me out the line. Like, I, he gave me none at all. You know, I was in the line for basketball skills, and he just gave me books, okay? <laughs> like, that's your skill, all right? Um, but... <laughs> Regardless of any claims to the contrary, right, all people need to do is look at my life, okay? I don't touch basketballs. I don't talk about basketball. I don't watch basketball. I don't have a favorite basketball team. I don't know any basketball stats. 
And when people think about me, nothing about me says basketball. Okay? So, so if, if I make claims about how good I am, right, just think about my life. Nothing about me says basketball. You've never seen me dribble. And that is a blessing. Okay? <laughs> no matter how offended I may become, set within the context of my life, no one should take me seriously if I say that I am the greatest basketball player since Michael Jordan. Because I do not have the necessary evidence to back up my claim. They weren't with me. Now, this example is readily transferable to what we see and hear from many Christians today. For example, about three quarters of Americans identify with some denomination of the Christian faith. 75% of Americans, okay, keep that in mind. 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. However, only 35% say they attend church or another house of worship once a week. Now, when we say another church or house of worship, that includes mosques and synagogues. 35% of Americans. Okay. So, you know, it's even less if we're just talking about Christian church. Even though 75% of Americans say that they identify as Christians, most Americans average only 12 times a year attending church. That is only once a month. Now listen to the statistic on people who attend church once a month. Nearly all, 94%, Nearly all of those who attend um, services at least once a month and well over half, which is 61%, who rarely or never attend for reasons other than non-belief, say that religion is at least somewhat important in their lives. Okay, So most Christians attend church 12 times a year, and 94% of them say that religion is... Mm, it's somewhat important in my life. Right, these, these are, these are, this is Christians, okay, because 75% of us are, of Americans are Christians. Keep this in mind. 48% of Americans are Bible users, okay? Now, that's a great thing, right? Nearly half of all Americans read their Bible, except that the study defines a Bible user as someone who uses the Bible outside of church three or four times per year, So outside of church, you read your Bible three to four times a year. Okay. 79% of American adults pray every three months, once every three months. 80% of American adults. 82% of U.S. adults consider themselves at least somewhat knowledgeable of the Bible. Okay, so 82% 82, 82 of Americans say that they are knowledgeable of the Bible. However, 43% of American adults cannot even name the first five books of the Bible. 
we're knowledgeable, but just not of the first five books. <laughs> Maybe we get to the last 62. You know, we got those last 62. All right. Fewer than half of American adults can name all four of the Gospels. Many cannot name more than two or three of Jesus' disciples. Sixty percent of U.S. adults cannot even name five of the Ten Commandments. And if we start talking about specifically doctrinal questions like the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the gospel, or heaven and hell, the numbers get even worse. And even though 75% of Americans identify as Christians, that hasn't uh, has not affected the divorce rate, domestic violence rates, or issues of race and justice in America. So apparently Christianity is not affecting anything. And sadly, last of all, John Ernest, the person who opened fire in the Kabad of Poway Synagogue last month, killing one and wounding others, was a member of a Presbyterian church. His father was an elder in the church, and in his manifesto, alongside of spewing hatred for Jews and minorities, he explained cogently Christian theology. He was able to explain Christianity perfectly in the same document where he spews hate for Jews and minorities. Now, when you listen to the statistics, what about anything that I just read shouts at you I am a Christian. I know many people would be offended by the insinuation, but let me return to my basketball analogy. Regardless of my claim to be a great basketball player, no one is justified in believing me without evidence correct and everybody was on board when you know laughing when we were talking about the basketball and me right stay with me okay remember i don't touch basketballs i don't talk about basketball i don't watch basketball games i don't have a favorite basketball team i don't know any basketball stats and when people think about me nothing about my life says basketball now replace my statements about basketball with the statistics about American Christians. I don't touch Bibles. I don't talk about God or to God, except once every three months. <laughs> okay. I don't watch, attend church. I don't have a favorite basketball team, a church home. I don't know any of the Bible facts. When people think about me, nothing about my life says Christian. And no matter how offended I may become, 
set within the context of my life, no one should take my claim seriously that, and then we take out that I'm the greatest basketball player since Michael Jordan, and insert, I am a Christian, because I do not have the necessary evidence <laughs> to back up my claim. <laughs> Y'all are wrong, man. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. No matter how offended I may become, set within the context of my life, no one should take my claim seriously that I'm a Christian because I do not have the necessary evidence to back up such a claim. Now, as I said, people would laugh when we were ta are talking about basketball, but when we were talking about our relationship with God, you know, that's not real funny. Okay. People get very offended um, because they feel that this is very judgmental. You can't judge me and say that I don't have faith in God. I'm not a Christian. Okay. Um, but is that really what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that every single faith claim needs to be accepted and respected? I don't think that that is what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what James is addressing in James chapter 2. He is here to tell us that faith claims are not enough. There must be underlying evidence to back up, the, up those claims. And as we will see, works are a necessary part of proving that we have genuine faith in God. Look at verse 14. Let us read. What James says, he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says they have faith but does not have works? Can faith, and in, in Greek this is definite, has a definite article there, can that kind of faith, the faith that says it has faith but does not have works, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now James begins uh, this section with a question. He's asking, 
Can the type of faith that does not produce works save? Can the type of faith that does not produce works save? And now again, I want to reiterate, James is not talking about faith in general. He's talking about a very specific type of faith, the type of faith that claims to trust God, but it doesn't do anything. Can that type of faith save? Faith that is in word only. Now, James is specifically talking about salvation, okay? Now, the question is, what does he mean by save, okay? Is he referring to salvation in the sense of deliverance from life circumstances, okay? Which some people will say that that is what James is referring to because they'll look in verse 15, and in verse 15, he's talking about someone who is, is naked and hungry and needing food and clothing, Okay, so they'll say that the salvation is talking about deliverance from this particular life circumstance. However, if you look back up at verse 11 through 13, right, James is specifically talking about actions that will be looked at during our judgment. Okay, so what, what judgment is that? Okay, the judgment seat of Christ. It's talking about ultimate or eternal judgment or salvation okay so james is addressing when he's talk says that can faith this type of faith save right he's not referring to specific circumstances in your life right although he could um but he is referring to will you be condemned when you stand before god's judgment seat now the reason i think that it is doesn't work when People say that it's talking about deliverance from specific circumstance, um, circumstances in life is because there's only one type of faith. Okay? The, the, the same type of faith that gets you into heaven is the same faith that delivers you from specific circumstances in life. Right. So um, this salvation is talking about ultimate salvation. Can the type of faith that does not produce works can that faith get you into heaven? Does anyone see that? Now, what James does is he makes it sort of like a courtroom case. Okay. And what he does is he brings in uh, four witnesses, four examples to prove his case. His first example is found in verses 15 through verse 18. And in this example, James is talking about someone who is destitute of food and clothing. This is not something that is a a short-term struggle, right? We can see this kind of in the Greek, that this is a long-term struggle in their lives. They are perpetually in need of food and clothing, and, and they come to someone who is supposed to be a Christian brother or sister, and, and they're asking for help to clothe themselves and to feed themselves. Okay? You see the picture. James says, what profit is there in sending this brother or sister away with a greeting, be warmed and fe- well-filled? Go in peace. 
what, what profit is there in sending this person away with a greeting if you do not also take care of that person's needs? Okay. You see the example. And I would add that what profit is there for the person that is in the situation and what profit is there for you being the person that is able to meet that need? Neither party leaves this situation with what is needed. The brother or sister is still in dire need, and the one who did not meet his or her need is still lacking the necessary works to prove that he or she is right with God. And I want us to turn to Matthew 25. I want you to look at this. Some people may think that this is an exaggeration. Okay, James is saying... That if you see a brother or sister in Christ, another Christian, that is in need of help, and you do not help them, but you dismiss them, James is very clear in saying, you are not a Christian. This is not an exaggeration. Matthew chapter 25. Matt, uh, James repeatedly takes from Jesus' teachings uh, in, in, his, in his epistle. And I believe that this portion that James is addressing is coming from Matthew chapter 7, right? We all know Matthew chapter 7. You will know them by their fruit, okay? Um, but also Matthew chapter 25. Listen to what Jesus says starting at verse 14. He says, I'm sorry, verse 31 is where I want to start at. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared uh, for you from the foundation of the world. Now, notice what's happening. Okay, it's judgment day. All nations are brought before Jesus for judgment. Jesus separates the two groups. He puts one group on the right, those who are his sheep, who are part of his flock. And he puts the other group on the left, those who are goats, those who are not a part of his flock. Now, we would think that the reason that Jesus separates the two groups is because one group has put their trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Right? Okay. And the group on the left is on the left because they did not put their trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says... The reason that those who are on the right, the ones who are part of his kingdom, a part of his flock, those who will inherit the kingdom of God, the reason they are on that side is because, verse 35, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Right. It seems like the people on the right are confused. I don't remember going to prison and visiting Jesus. I don't I don't remember Jesus being hungry and feeding him or clothing him. Jesus, when did we do this? Verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Their actions, their work on behalf of people who are rightly related to Jesus is the same thing as doing those works to Jesus himself. Now, the people who are on the left, those who are not going to inherit the kingdom, those who Jesus sends to eternal punishment, you would think that they are going to punishment because they have rejected Jesus. And yet it says, verse 41, then I will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer um, will answer him saying, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to uh, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus and James are clearly stating that how we treat those who believe in Christ is indicative of our actions to Christ himself and of our heart condition towards Christ himself. Casually mistreating and not meeting the needs of poor fellow Christians is indicative of an unregenerate, unsaved heart. Your actions, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, right? You will know them by their fruit. And if we do not help those who are Jesus's sheep, Jesus's brothers and sisters, the children of God, it is because we ourselves are not one of them. Although this may be difficult to accept, it is the clear teaching of Scripture. The Apostle John also says, I'm not going to have you turn it here, but you can write down 1 John 3, 16 through 18. The Apostle John also says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? The idea is that it cannot. 
he goes on to say, my little children, let us not love in word and in tongue, right? Faith claims, but in deed and in truth. If you have the resources to meet someone's need, but you send them on their way without helping them, and you can, how can you say the love of God abides in you? Our actions demonstrate the genuineness or lack of genuineness in our faith. And this can clearly be seen in the attitude of the one, if you turn back to James chapter 2, the one who uh, sends this person on their way. Listen to what the person says. When they say in verse 15, be warmed and filled, right? This can either be in the middle voice or the passive voice in Greek. So either the person is saying, warm and fill yourself, Okay. I need help. Can you please help me out? I'm, I'm struggling. Go warm and fill yourself. Okay. And that is the middle voice. Or in the passive voice, it means stay warm and well fed. So either you're telling the person that it is their personal responsibility to take care of yourself. I'm not responsible for you. Or you are telling them that the little that they have is good enough, they should use what they have to take care of themselves. Now, doesn't that sound like our pol politics today? <laughs> All right, I'm going to stay away from that topic. This attitude of callous disregard for a fellow believer doesn't profit the one in need and it demonstrates a heart that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus was living his life and, and going about his business and, and he would see people, routinely the Bible would say that he would stop because he had compassion on them, right? This idea of compassion it, um, is what the word for compassion is where we get the, the word spleen, right? It's like there was something internal inside of him that w as he's going about his business and he would see people hurting or in need, something inside of him would not let him keep going. He had to stop and help people in need. And if you don't have something internally that at least at least tells you to stop, you might, I, I, I wish I had something on me. But if you don't even stop to think, do I have anything in my? That's showing that the Holy Spirit has not done a work in your heart yet. Is everyone with me? James points out in verse 17 that in the same way that a seemingly pious greeting detached from charity, right, be warmed and well-filled, we could say it in the, you know, the best way possible, you know, today, you know, I'm praying for you, 
pocket full of money. I'm praying for you. But I'm, I'm hungry. I'm praying for you. You know, God is going to work it out. Won't he do it? Right. <laughs> right. No, ma- no matter what the Christianese is, these seemingly pious statements detached from Christian charity is useless. And so is faith that is detached from works. Now, James, you know, he was ahead of his time, right? Um, I believe he had some American Christians in his church (laughs) because they got real slick in verse 18. And um, they began to argue with James. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. See, pastor, you've been teaching on spiritual gifts. And, you know, all Christians are not the same. God gives all of us different gifts. Maybe he's given me faith and he's giving you works. You can't judge my faith because I don't have works like you. Right? So, James, he just throws it back on his objector. He says, okay, that's great. Can you do me a favor? Can you show me your faith without your works? Yeah, I mean, if if God has gifted you with faith, show me your faith without works. And then he just stood back and just waited. Because just like I can say I'm the greatest basketball player since Michael Jordan, right? And people say, well, put up and shut up. I mean, prove it. It is impossible, James' point is, to show or demonstrate faith without works. The only way to demonstrate that you truly trust God, that you genuinely have a relationship with him, is by what you do. So if someone says, well, I have faith and you have works, well, show me your faith without your works, because I can show you my faith by my works, because that's the only way to show faith, by what you do. This absurd objection is easily, o- easily overcome. James simply, simply asks, show me your faith without your works. It cannot be done. Just like my claim to be the best basketball player since Michael Jordan, it cannot be proven true unless I do something. Faith cannot be demonstrated by words alone. Works are a necessary evidence to proving that my faith is genuine. Now, James moves on. After he proves, using this example, that someone who needs food or clothing uh, and it is not given that, that person's faith is not genuine, right? Uh, he moves on to his second example. And James, maybe a little facetious here. Okay. James says, okay, well, you have faith without works, He says, let me use an example of demons. Okay, Listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that, (laughs) and they tremble. 
This argument is based on a person claiming to know the right things about God, claiming to know correct Christian doctrine. They believe that there is one God. So specifically, right, they're talking about monotheism. This is something that is is core to all that the Bible teaches about God, right? As a matter of fact, he's probably alluding to the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, okay? Talking about the oneness of God. God is one and only one, and he will only be worshipped alone, okay? So, This is similar to us saying that we know the doctrine of the Trinity. We know the deity of Jesus Christ. We know the gospel, okay? I I believe the right things. I must be saved, right? James says, if you believe that faith without works is possible, all you're doing is putting yourself on the same level as the demons, I believe in the one true God. So do demons. And guess what? They've met him before. (laughs) And when they get in his presence, they shudder. Okay. I mean, even the demons' faith causes them to do more than you are doing is his point. They believe that there is one true God. The demons believe in the Trinity. The demons believe that Jesus is God. The demons even believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But they are not saved. Right? I believe all of the right stuff about God. Okay? So do the demons. And they're going to hell. You want to join them? (laughs) Right? This this is his point. Okay? You want to join them? Even the demons believe and they tremble. So he summarizes this point by saying, oh, foolish man, empty one, empty headed one. You know, you got to recognize that faith, even believing the right things, if it does not produce anything in your life, that can't save you. Faith without works is dead. The word is barren. It's unproductive. The idea here is of money that does not produce interest. What what point is that? (laughs) Now, after citing two negative examples, James moves on to two positive examples, right? The the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. Before we talk about that, James uses um, a phrase here, justify by works, right? And so what I want us to do is is understand what is justification, okay? Three ways justification can be used, okay? This is important to understand how James is using this word so we do not confuse him with what Paul is saying, okay? We'll come back to Paul at the end of, of the message. Number one, the first way that this word justification can be used is in what we call a forensic way, right? Like forensics, you know, you all, everybody watch CSI stuff, okay? So it it can be used in a forensic or a legal way. It's a courtroom term. 
it can mean that we are declared righteous or that God changes our legal standing in his sight. So he moves us from being a sinner to being holy or righteous in his sight. And this is usually how the word is used, especially when we're talking about how someone comes to faith in Christ. So I'm unsaved. I'm a sinner. Right. When the Bible says that I've been justified, that's because I put my faith in Jesus and now I'm saved. Okay, that's one way. That's usually how the Bible uses the word justification. The second way that the um, Bible uses the word justification is in a demonstrative sense. Right. It's demonstrating something. It means to validate or to vindicate someone as being righteous or in a right standing with God. Okay. And this validation can be in God's sight or it can be in the sight of mankind. Right. So God can see you as righteous or people can look at your life and see that you are a righteous person. Okay. Everybody have that. Third way. And I know y'all hate when I use these words. Don't even worry about how to spell it. Can be used in a eschatological sense. Okay. Okay. So eschatology means last things, end times. Okay. So when we talk about end time prophecy, we're talking about eschatology. All right. So it can be used in an eschatological sense, meaning that on the day of judgment, God will pr- make a pronouncement over you that you truly are righteous. So it can be used in a legal sense so that the moment you trust in Christ, you are saved, you move from being a sinner to becoming a, a, um, a Christian, a holy one, a saint. It can be used of uh, me demonstrating that I truly do have faith in Christ. So ongoing throughout my life. But on the day that I, I see him face to face and I stand before him in judgment, right? I want to hear him say, righteous. Well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, so you see those three ways. Now, how is James using the word justification? I think that James is using the word primarily in the second sense, that a person is validated or vindicated by their actions in their life, okay? So they're demonstrating that they do have a relationship with God. And then in a second sense, um, I think that it could be used, um, he can be using it in a way dealing with the final judgment. The reason I think that is if we look at verse 18, right, he has clearly already said to his objector, show me your faith. Okay, prove to me that you have genuine faith in Christ. Demonstrate your faith to me. Right. So he's he's talking about how we demonstrate the seriousness or the genuineness of our faith. Now, listen to how he puts this with Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, 
and not by faith only. So when he says that Abraham was justified by his works, by that he means that his faith in God was vindicated by his actions when he attempted to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Now, Abraham, we all know, was a man of faith, right? God appears to him and says, I want you to leave your family, leave everything you possess, go to a land that I will um, show you. And Abraham, he drops everything. He leaves his home. He leaves his family, except he takes his father and Lot. Okay, so, so he wasn't completely, you know, faithful to what God told him. Okay, so he stops along the way. Okay, he ends up going to, to um, leaving Ur. He goes to Haran. His father dies, and God has to come back to him and say it. I say, get up and go to the city that I'm going to show you. He said, leave his family. But he takes Lot with him anyway, okay, which causes trouble later on. Okay, so This is what happens when you listen to your family. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> but then some possibly, you know, a decade or so goes by, some time goes by, God promises him, I'm going to give you descendants, this land, and a blessing. And Abraham believes these things that God promises him, right? But that's it. God leaves him, Genesis chapter 12. Some years possibly again pass, God appears to him in Genesis chapter 15, and he tells him that he's going to have a son. If you look up at the stars, Abraham, if you can count the stars, so will you be able to count your descendants. Verse 6 says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted for, to him as righteousness. God looked at his faith, his trust in God's promise, and he looked at his faith and counted that faith as him being righteous in his sight. Okay. So now, 25 year, more years go by. Okay. We, we know that Abraham figures out, I'm going to help God out. I'm going I'm to just go, I'm going to go get Hagar. And, and we're going to have this child. And God said, nope, that's not the one. You're going to actually have a child with Sarah. Okay. So, so 25 years go by. Abraham is now 100 years old. His wife has a son. Okay. When this son is approximately 13 years old, God says, I want you to take that child and kill him. What goes through your mind? To us, I'm like, I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> right? Right. But, but for Abraham, it was more than that. God had made him promises. He says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And through your descendants, all of the world is going to be blessed. Okay, so, so Abraham is, is holding on to all of those promises. 
And then on the other hand, God says, the only one that I've given you to fulfill those promises, I need you to kill him. And so Abraham has the promises of God on one hand and God asking him to kill the only one who can fulfill these promises in the other hand. What do you do? Abraham, it doesn't seem that he even wrestled with the idea. (laughs) The next verse just simply says he got up in the morning (laughs) and took his son and went on his way. We get to see what's going on in the mind of Abraham when we go to Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews says that Abraham didn't even waver in his faith. Because he concluded that he who had made the promise was able even to raise his son from the dead. Therefore, he went to sacrifice him. Okay, well, God made a promise. God said, kill the promise. Okay, well, both of them have to be true. Let me go do what God said because God is going to do what he said. So, uh, I mean, the only option is for if I kill him, he's got to raise him back to the, from the dead. Sounds simple enough. Let's go. Abraham could have, God, you know my heart. You, you know I love you more than Isaac. You know, God, I, I, want, I wouldn't hold anything back from you, God. Okay, well, give me your son. God, you know my heart. Well, you know, I got I got to pray about it for three days. All right. Can y'all fast and pray with me? Pastor, what you think about what God told me? He's like, no, that's crazy. See, God pastor said that was crazy. (laughs) But if Abraham did not take the steps he took to fulfill what God had promised, there was no way for him to be justified or vindicated. There would be no way for anyone to know that he truly believed God was able to bring to pass what he had promised. God had promised Abraham that through Isaac, he will fulfill all the promises he made in Genesis 15, including having numerous descendants. But there would be no way for Abraham to prove he actually believed God if he was not willing to obey God. You with me? It was Abraham's actions, not his faith claim, that proved and validated that he really trusted God and therefore was righteous, meaning that he was in a right relationship with God or that he was saved. So by these three examples, you, you, you see what James is excuse me, trying to say. There is no way for us to believe someone who says that they are a Christian if they don't have works to back it up. Works are a necessary part. The good works, the fruit that is supposed to be a part of your life, if that is missing, 
there's no way for us to validate the claim that someone is genuinely saved. Is everyone with me? As a matter of fact, James takes it a step further in verse 22. He says that Abraham's faith was working with his works (laughs) and by his works Abraham's faith was made complete the word mature see that that's how genuine faith works faith is like a, a seed if you have an apple seed and you plant the apple seed what's the only way that you know that the apple seed was was a viable seed if it produces an apple tree, okay. If you plant an apple seed and nothing happens, then then what? It was a dead seed. So so if if we if we plant faith in someone's heart, but it doesn't produce anything, I don't know if it was real. The only way to know if that faith is real is if it produces something. And and when it produces something, James says in verse 22, is the works that is produced, it goes on to then perfect or mature the faith that you had initially. So you were were immature, but the more we obey God and, and do what God tells us to do, the more we grow in our faith, right? That's what Romans chapter four, verse 20 says about Abraham. Let me finish up with this example of Rahab, and then I want us to compare what James is saying in um, in chapter two to what Paul says, so that no one is confused. James wants us to leave with the fact that genuine faith is always demonstrated by our actions. James adduces one last example. This is the example of Rahab. And I believe that he uses this example of Rahab to teach the universality of his point. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. Abraham was a pious religious person. Rahab was a sinner. Well, that's not technically true. I was about to say Abraham was a Jew, but you get my point, okay? <laughs> okay. Even though the Jewish nation didn't exist for a couple hundred years, you get my point, right? Right. She was a Gentile, okay? And he was on the top of society. She was a prostitute. She was on the bottom of society. And yet, James uses both of these examples to prove the same point Though no matter who you are, you must have works in order to prove that your faith is genuine. And he gives this uh, summary. To save time, I won't talk about Rahab. Verse 26, he gives this summary of all that he says in these verses. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so 
faith without works is dead. Just like a human body, when it is separated from the spirit, is dead, right? It, it can do nothing, can't help you, can't save you. Faith that is detached from works is dead, is barren, is unproductive. It cannot save you on the day of judgment. Now, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 4. But I want to because I want to make sure that we are all clear on the difference between what Paul is saying and what James is saying. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says the complete seems like the complete opposite of what uh, James has said. James says that a person is justified by their works. He says that Abraham is justified by their works. Paul says that a person has to be justified by faith apart from their works, and he specifically says that Abraham was not justified by his works. Okay, want you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 21. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was fa- has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So, of course, he used the exact same scripture in Genesis 15, verse 6, that James uses. Now, verse 4, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessing of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute his sin. So it seems as though Paul and James are at odds with one another. But the question is, what question is Paul answering and what question is James answering? Who is the audience for Paul and who is the audience for James? And you see really quickly that James and Paul are not addressing the same people and they are not addressing the same issue. Paul is addressing people who believe that in order to be saved, they have to do good works. So if I want to be saved, I got to do enough hard work in order to make God pleased with me. And to those people, Paul says, you have to be justified only by faith because your works are not a good basis for a relationship with God. The only foundation that God will accept for people to have a relationship with him 
is the death of his son. All of your works are like a filthy rag to God. (laughs) But the work of Christ was perfect. So in order to get saved, your works mean nothing. You only can trust in Christ's finished work. James, on the other hand, is not addressing how we get saved. James is addressing people who says that they are already saved. I'm a Christian. But then they come to church and say, well, Paul says, I, I ain't got to have to do no works. I, I just, I got to do it by faith. <laughs> and James says, well, if you say you saved, but the faith that you possess does not create good works, then you are not saved because you have to be justified. You vindicate the proof of your faith by what it produces. And Paul says this repeatedly. We looked at this uh, Sunday before last, right? All of the scriptures that Paul, right, in Galatians, nothing um, um, uh, benefits anything except faith working through love. Okay, so Paul repeatedly talks about how your faith is supposed to work and produce things. We saw a ton of scriptures. It took us an hour to go through it. Go get the, you know, listen to it on Faith Life if you got about an hour and a half of time. Okay, we went through a ton of scriptures showing that Paul believes the same thing. They are addressing two different issues. Paul is saying, how do you get saved? You cannot circumcise yourself. You cannot fast enough. You cannot give enough money to the poor. You can't do enough good deeds to have God let you in heaven. The only way that can happen is if you put your trust in Jesus. But once you are saved, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he created you for good works so that you can walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. And James follows up and says that if you are not walking in the good works that God has prepared for you, then your faith is dead. It was not genuine when you say you trusted Christ. Now, I think this is a message that should be given to our entire generation, right? Um, We need to hear both of these messages today. There are so many people in our world today who is literally working themselves to death, thinking that if I just do just enough, right, if I I can get to the gate and I have 51% good works and 49% bad works, I'm going to still get in. No trusting in Christ. No good deed. I mean, you know, no faith. It's, it's just if I have enough good works, uh, I'm going to get in. Right. Some people marry this idea, the, the two ideas that I, ha- I have to have trust in Christ and I need to do all of these works. Right. We talked before about um, um, Bill O'Reilly did a, a, did a, a, a was talking about his faith. And, and he was like, I'm, I'm just trying to have favor with the deity. Right. And so and so he writes his books and and all of the money that comes in through his website, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. He takes all of that money. He doesn't take a penny for himself. He just keeps giving away to poor causes, because in his words, when he gets to heaven on the judgment day, 
he wants to have done just enough to get in. Okay. It's sad to say, and I don't know about him personally, right? He may genuinely trust in Christ, I don't know. But the idea that you can work or do something good enough to make God happy enough to let you in heaven, that's a fool's errand, <laughs> right? It, it, it's not going to work. He will only let you in by faith in his son. But we have a message for the 75% of American Christians, right? That you can't just put your trust, pray a prayer. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And um, please let me in. All right. Amen. All right. Let me, time to go back to the club, you know. <laughs> and, and, and nothing changes. Nothing changes in your life. No fruit. No good work. You don't love God's people. You don't, you know. And I, I mean, literally, I don't know. Maybe it's because I spend way too much time on social media. But all of the people that I'm friends with on social media, they hate Christians. I'm just like, man, all, all my Christian friends hate Christians. <laughs> I mean... I mean, like, you should see how Christians talk about Christians. Apparently, nobody hates Christians more than Christians. And I'm just like, maybe we don't know him. Because if, if Christians don't hold to the same political belief that I hold to, I don't love them. I don't care about them. I mean, you should see how we talk about each other. We don't know him. Now, as I said last Sunday, I don't know how um, how many good works or how much a person needs, right? I I I don't think that that's the point, right? Um, some of us are going to, you know, get to the gate and have barrels of, of fruit. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm ready. Jesus, I got, I got, I got greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> you name it. know why my mind worked the way it does. <laughs> right. and so, some of us are going to get there. We're going to have so much fruit. <laughs> okay. And, you know, some of us are going to just be. Well, well, show, me, show, me, show me what you got. You know how you go to school on um, on a show and tell day and everybody has all these. Look, at, look what I got. They're like, oh, people just in back of the corner like. Dang, I should have brought something else, <laughs> right? And then, Jesus, this is all I have. So this is the only fruit that I have to show for my relationship with you. And Jesus is going to say, no, he's not going to say depart from me. <laughs> That's for the people who have no fruit. 
And he's like, say, you know, we'll take the elevator downstairs and go to the left. Okay. <laughs> right. But, but you, this is all I have. I got one apple, Jesus. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, because if there's any fruit in your life, it is because the Holy Spirit has been working. Some, for some of us, we cooperate with the Spirit, and boom, just fruit all over the place, right? For some of us, the Holy Spirit, he got to till the ground. Like, eventually, we're going to produce something, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? I, I, I'm, I, trust me, trust me. I am on the latter end, right? I, me and the Holy Spirit, we wrestle. He's like, all right, you know, we gonna get some fruit this year. I don't know, Holy Spirit. <laughs> I don't know. We might get a, you know, a couple grapes. <laughs> but, but if there is any fruit, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's that's. That, that, that's what I'm trying to say. You must have fruit in order to prove the genuineness of your faith. And this is something that we need to tell all of our family, friends, coworkers, people that we interact with, because there are a ton of people who are going to end up in Matthew chapter 7. Strolling, I'm going on in. Oh, hold on, sir. Like, what? What? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't, you know? I was told don't use the ushers no more. Wasn't I on the security ministry? <laughs> the exact words were keep the ushers name out of your mouth. I was like, ooh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See. <laughs> I wasn't I on security, Lord. He's like, yeah, well, yeah, you was on security. Take the elevator, go downstairs and to the left. They'll be waiting for you. (laughs) Works are a necessary part of our justification because there's no way to know if our, our faith is genuine unless it produces good fruit. Father, we thank you today for allowing us another opportunity to come into your presence. Lord, I know that this is a very touchy subject because we live in a time where you cannot question people about their faith. That if if we just make the claim that we are a Christian, you're supposed to just accept it and, and don't ask any questions. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. We are all supposed to examine one another's fruit as a matter of fact we're supposed to examine one another and encourage one another so that we can produce more fruit lord there are so many people uh, that we know and don't know who who believes that they are saved and going to heaven and yet there's no evidence to support that claim Lord, I pray that you would help us to be very careful in in this area because we don't want to judge something before the time. There may be someone that is 
that you're working on and it takes one, two, three, five, 10, 20 years to move them out of a particular situation. And, and we don't want to look at them and, and, and judge them in our self-righteousness only because we don't struggle in that area. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the type of people who examine ourselves first. Help us to take the beam out of our own eyes so that, as you said, we can see clearly how to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eyes. I pray that you would help us to deal with our own self-righteous hearts so that we can Gen, uh, gingerly um, have the conversations to encourage people and, and have them to reflect on their faith to see if it is genuine to be able to show them what the Bible truly says about faith and works there may be some people that we know that it appears that they don't have works but uh, maybe the work is internal where they feel convicted about their sin but they aren't in the place to turn away from it yet. Help us to see that conviction is a work of the Spirit. And that is proof that the Spirit is there. I pray, Lord, that above all things, you would teach us how to love one another because love is the only way that we can have these type of conversations that will edify others and not turn them away. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be great evangelists. Your word says that those who win souls are wise. Give us wisdom in how to talk to people about genuine faith, Lord, so that we could draw people to yourself and not see the people that we love the most turned away on the day of judgment. And lastly, Lord, I pray that you would keep working in each of us. Every single day, you're trying to work genuine faith in our lives so that it can produce the fruit that honors and glorifies you. I pray that you would keep working in each one of us, Holy Spirit, as you promised that you will until the day of Jesus Christ. And on that day, Lord, I pray that every single one of us are able to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you now in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Amen.